I would like to preface all of this by saying fuck Roman Polanski. them witches the podcast where all of them are witches with your hosts winnie and ria so this is our very first episode so i think first we'll just like talk a bit about what we want the podcast to be before we start on our very first topic i think the main thing is we kind of want to focus on horror creepy stuff Witches, obviously. Metaphorical witches. And real witches, probably. Are there real witches? It's a question to be answered. Yeah, that's the, that's the big question. Are there witches? Are there not witches? Are we all witches? Well, this is all of them. All of them. So we, us two are, are witches. Obviously, we're also coming at it through a feminist lesbian lens putting on our uh <laughs> queer theory hats <laughs> it's 1987 <laughs> i mean yeah i mean a lot of earlier parts of queer theory did focus a lot on men that whole like homoerotic and action movie star stuff this is more this is for the lesbians for the gals this is for the lesbians which is why i mean probably maybe we probably won't do an episode on american psycho but i'm definitely going to talk about it a lot because american psycho is for the lesbians i don't think people no, understand really that really, no, the older i get the more i realize i'm like every year i'm like this is a film made for women i think a lot of people don't realize that it's directed by a woman and i think you can tell that it is i think it's also just have to do with with you know getting older and like witnessing as like social media all these like weird things that happen i'm like you know what it feels i'm like this is like american psycho i see american psycho and absolutely everything but let's 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 put a pit in that for now i'm sure we can come back to it later but we'll we'll uh, we'll 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 come back to american psycho one day in the future but for now for now we are going to talk about the one the only rosemary's baby by an amazing writer known as Ivor Levin. Our bestie. <laughs> like, we love him. Like, you know, we have we have tea parties every Saturday. I like what you, you, you texted me the other day about our fan lesbianing over <laughs> Ivor Levin. Like, you know, sometimes I have so many questions and I wish, and I wish he was, like, still alive because then I could be like, um, um, good morning, Mr. Ivor Levin. I have a question about this scene, page blah blah blah, on this book. Um, 
So is like can you do this and is this supposed to be gay? Are they lesbians? Are also, they lesbians? is Hutch gay? Hutch is so gay. We'll what talk more this? obviously we're gonna talk more about Hutch later on, but yeah, no, Hutch is Hutch in my heart and in my mind and in the world is gay. And that's just that's just a fact. So obviously we're gonna be talking about the book. We're gonna be going through the entire book, beat by beat, analyzing it. I've got a lot of notes on the culture of the 60s of the time, so we can think about the context of a lot of stuff. We're going to talk about the characters, the meaning, and then also the adaptations and how we would do an adaptation, because we have ideas. <laughs> I mean, this book really, really does... Um just on a very deep level yeah i have a lot of i have a lot of thoughts and feelings which i think is going to become very obvious because we're going to do this probably in four or five episodes so we'll have a lot we have lots to say we know we have lots to say and since we are also going to be talking about the adaptations i would like to preface all of this by saying fuck roman polanski that's 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 about it really and that Mia Farrow has done nothing wrong ever in her life and we love her and I'm actually very impressed that um Polanski has is still alive I honestly <laughs> shock to my core it's like can these old men not just die and I think recording this now in the wake of Roe v. Wade being overturned and the Depp v. Heard trial, which I don't think we're going to talk about, but we definitely won't talk about. But it's, I think uh, this book means more to me now, seeing just, especially in the past few weeks, with everything that has been going on. Whew. It's kind of funny, because when we first wrote this, it was a very different time. Yeah, like we we'd started it and then I um I was finishing up the last few chapters of of part 1 of the book and then the Roe v Wade news broke and I was like, "Oh, Jesus Christ." And I mean, we we don't live in the US, but I know that the abortion debate has come up in Canada in recent years and mercifully for the most part it's it's been shut down so that we still have legal abortion safe access to it here in Canada. Mostly. Mostly, yeah. Should we get into the book now? We should. We should. Okay, we ready? So there are two parts in the book, part one and part two. We're starting with part one. I believe for the first episode, we're going to get through chapters one to five. And we're going to start now with chapter one, and I'm going to read the very first paragraph in the book. Rosemary and Guy Woodhouse had signed a lease on a five-room apartment in a geometric white house on First Avenue when they received word from a woman named Mrs. Cortez that a four-room apartment in the Bramford had become available. The Bramford, old, black, and elephantine, is a warren of high-ceilinged apartments prized for their fireplaces and Victorian detail. Rosemary and Guy had been on its waiting list since their marriage, but had finally given up. So Guy is on the phone with Mrs. Cortez, and he's like putting his hand over the receiver, and he and 
Rosemary are arguing about if they should go see it. Rosemary's like, yes, we have to, we have to go see it. And Guy is like, we already signed the lease. Rosemary's like, no, we have to see it. It's the Bram, as they call it. The Bram. Gotta go see the Bram. Would you go see the Bram? If it's a big deal, why not? Yeah, it's like everyone wants to live in the Bram. Guy comes up with a lie about not having signed the actual lease so they can go view the apartment. Rosemary says to him, you're a marvelous liar. Guy at the mirror said, Christ, a pimple. Because, well, you know, obviously the only thing Guy cares about is his face. Well, it's kind of a pretty early indicator of what kind of person Guy is. He's, you know... An actor? I mean, actors are stereotyped as being very self-obsessed. Well, as an actor, I can say former actor, but I still do some acting from time to time. I am very self-obsessed. <laughs> you also cunning, ambitious? Cunning, ambitious. However, that I, I'm depressive so that I also stay in bed all the time. <laughs> so I'm, <laughs> I think Guy's more of a go-getter than I am. People have to, like, invite me out to do things. Once I'm there, once I'm somewhere, then I'm like, that's when the ambition really kicks in. <laughs> I, I now have to talk about Guy Woodhouse's skincare routine. So this is my other um, American Psycho thing. I made a joke about the business card scene, and that instead of a business card, it's all the guys talking about their skincare routines, and I just want to be like, let's see Paul Allen's skincare routine. So, let's see Guy Woodhouse's skincare routine. I looked up 1960s skincare routines. I found this video, it's this, like, skincare tutorial from 1969, and really, like, it's targeted at women, but I feel like a lot of the stuff would go the same for uh, any male actors at the time as well. But I just wanted to read some of the things it, it said in this video because I think it's so funny. So are you ready to hear about this vintage skincare tutorial film from 1969? It was very short. I'm excited. A beautiful complexion is one part makeup, nine parts cleanliness. That just come like the modern day version of what we have, except um, we're not, not like the best base for for makeup is a good skincare routine. So those are the words like, use a cleansing cream, which like you can take off your makeup and then also it'll cleanse your face. And that's generally would just be a cold cream. Pond's cold cream, which honestly I still use. I think it's the best makeup remover because it's like half of it is makeup remover and then half of it is moisturizer. So once you like rinse it off, the moisturizer stays so your face is still moisturized. And that was being used a lot. So this is, this really has nothing to do with Rosemary's Baby. I just need a reason to talk about cosmetics in some way, because that's what I know about. <laughs> then it says, clean your face with a mild soap. Lather into skin to deep, clean pores. It's basically the same, except that we, we have, like, actual cleansers nowadays. They're good. Okay, this is really funny here. So for blackheads or pimples, the best remedy? Cleanliness. This video is so obsessed with cleanliness. It's like, that's not technically true. Especially when people are like acne prone or have acne skin. It's like, it's a skin condition. It's not like, because you're dirty. 
the 60s was a wild time. This was before they did find a lot of um, proper medical examination of the skin. Back then, I was like, well, we see you look dirty. Clean your face. In this video, it also, like, it did mention that there were, like, special cleansers that you can get for, like, certain people. And it, like, mentioned teenage girls specifically. Teenage girls who have acne? Yeah. Which was, like, okay. Like, it's good. But it doesn't even, like... But it's interesting because it doesn't actually mention, like, really, like, specific products or ingredients that are good for your skin. It's like, they didn't talk about that then, apparently. I'm sure if I did more research, I could find something. But yeah, it mentions that there are special cleansing lotions available. And right at the end, I loved... (laughs) It said, Avoid excesses and exposure to the elements. Protect skin with a suntan lotion. And... Too much sunbathing ages your precious skin. They actually realized at the time? I'm impressed. Yeah. It's just the, like, one part makeup, nine parts cleanliness is so funny. But anyway, that's, I think, guy's skincare regimen. I like to imagine that he uses cold cream and probably wears a lot of makeup. Because he would have done. Uh, for stage. And screen they have sunscreen back in the day? Well, yes, it said protect skin with a suntan lotion, so... Mm. Was it actually just... I'm wondering, like, did they actually have, like, proper... I I honestly, I don't know. I know, like, obviously there were things that people did to protect their face from the sun, but they didn't... As far as I know, if we're looking at, like, the Western world and we're specifically looking at white people, tanning was in vogue then... It became big in the 30s and definitely in like the 50s, 60s, where the look was like, was to look sun-kissed. I you look just wordly, wordly if you like had a tan, like, oh, you traveled sometimes. Yeah, but I think especially for men. So right now the book is based 1965. My, my first thought for like a big movie star at that time would be Rock Hudson. And if we're thinking of like the like all-American handsome actor type he would probably be tanned like rock was tan so (laughs) so i imagine yeah guy probably would get tan and stuff especially if he's doing tv as well we'll talk about that more anyhow the next day they go to the bramford apartment for the viewing they meet one of the uh, superintendents named mr mickless So when we talk about Guy being an actor, that he mostly works in TV, and Mr. McListen mentions that there's a lot of money in commercials, which is true. He'd have to be pretty tan for commercials, I think. (laughs) Who's a really tan actor that could play Guy (laughs) nowadays? (laughs) I haven't really thought of any actual casting ideas for Guy. We've talked about for the other characters. You want someone who does look like him. I think it's because Guy is kind of difficult because it's like, you you want to give an actor that could play Guy, but I guess it's because Guy's not like as interesting and you kind of like don't think about him at th- that much. Which, it's kind of funny because he does push the plot forward. Yeah. It, I think about him a lot, but not like in a, ooh, I wonder who could play him way. I think about like w- what he means to the plot. I think of him in conjunction with Rosemary. He's just some guy. Literally. Um, 
I think Channing Tatum is too sweet to play him. I think the thing is, Channing Tatum doesn't look very. Um, I don't think he would be like the right choice for. He, yeah, he, he looks too role. like he looks too like soft and sweet. That's the problem. Yeah, but he's, like, like I rough, think, but, he's not- but I still think that kind of vibe would be good. Okay, like if can- I liked Chris Evans, I would say Chris Evans. <laughs> Chris Evans isn't very tan, though. Like. Other guy, was the other? He doesn't um, have Chris? to. Be, he doesn't. I guess he doesn't have to be really <laughs> tan. We just like decided. No, it's like this guy cleared this. He's an actor, so he has to be tanned. No, you know, I feel I can understand Chris Evans, but I also can understand the guy who plays Thor, Chris Hemsworth. Chris Hemsworth, yes, because he has. I think it's because his eyes look very striking. Like they're very pierced. Yeah. Oh well, if we're thinking about Chris's, actually, I think Chris Pine would be really good in the role. Chris Pine would be very good. He's probably too old. Um, Chris Pine's the guy who was in Wonder Woman? Yes. I haven't seen either of the Wonder Woman films, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Neither have I, but I just know, because people, I just think, I just know he's a Chris, because people talked about him. When I think of Chris Pine, I think about uh, Just My Luck with Lindsay Lohan. (laughs) I love that movie. (laughs) It's so dumb. But also, um, the guy who plays Loki as Guy. Tom Hiddleston. I don't know. You don't feel him? You don't feel it? I don't feel it. I like Tom Hiddleston. I think he's a good actor. I just don't think he's hot enough. <laughs> like, I'm not sure if he's attractive enough. Sorry. Okay, I was thinking because he's like really, he plays a really cunning character. That's what I meant, but okay. I guess he's not that attractive. Sorry. Sorry to Tom Hiddleston. Great actor. Uh, not hot. And- Oscar Isaac, though. As a, Oscar hot. Isaac is guy. He's way too old to play guy now. But like, oh, ho, 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 he would be very good. Rosemary was set when they were like in the thirties, and he was like in his forties. Yeah, I mean, I guess nowadays we could have them be a bit older. Rosemary being more like around thirty. You think it's because of you watched that because of the the remake of Rosemary's Baby? Yeah, well, I mean, because they they change a lot of the context for that so and especially because they they updated it so it is based in when it came out in uh 2014 anyway sorry back to the business back to like what really anyway uh i've got another quote here let's see uh mr Miklas. Think of an accent for him. Let's go. Okay. The previous tenant, Mrs. Gardenia, Mr. McLeish said, passed away only a few days ago and nothing has been moved out of the apartment yet. Her son asked me to tell whoever looks at it that the rugs, the air conditioners, and some of the furniture can be had practically for the asking. Did she die in the apartment? Rosemary asked. Not that it... Oh no, in a hospital, Mr. McLeish said. She'd been in a coma for weeks. So the previous tenant died after being in a coma let's put a pin in that let's put a let's put a pin in that for later oh yeah i will be doing accents for like all the characters i would do an accent but i'm i kind of don't want to sound like offensively bad i'm just i'm i'm just vibing i'm gonna do the accents as they come and see what happens i'm gonna do an accent for hutch because i feel like i have a good accent for him oh my gosh okay yeah yeah, yeah. you can be hutch (laughs) 
So they're looking around. It says, opposite the kitchen was the dining room or second bedroom, which Mrs. Gardenia had apparently used as a combination study and greenhouse. Hundreds of small plants, dying and dead, stood on jerry-built shelves under spirals of unlighted fluorescent tubing. In their midst, a roll-top desk spilled over the, with books and papers. A handsome desk it was, broad and gleaming with age. So, uh, Guy and Mr. Nicholas are around at stuff. Rosemary passes by some uh, brown plants that are, have died. She's looking over the desk. On the desk, she finds a note that it looks like Mrs. Gardenia had been writing, but she only glances at a little bit of the note and on the note what she reads says then merely the intriguing pastime i believed it to be i can no longer associate myself and then she realizes she's snooping and looks up and uh turns her attention back to mr Miklas and guy but it appears as if mrs gardenia was writing to someone something happened and she's like not chill with it anymore she no longer wants to Get stoned and swing. I'm sorry. I don't know why you why you play, why you said it like that. I mean, intriguing pastime. What what would you say an intriguing pastime is? I guess I don't know. Maybe they're doing LSD. I mean, <laughs> you know what? It's 1965. They probably were. So in the same room, the room would accommodate almost perfectly the nursery she had imagined. It was a bit dark, the windows faced on a narrow courtyard, but the white and yellow wallpaper would brighten it tremendously. The bathroom was small, but a bonus, and the closet, filled with potted seedlings that seemed to be doing quite well, was a good one. They turned to the door, and Guy asked, uh, What are all these? Herbs, mostly, Rosemary said. There's mint and basil. I don't know what these are. So she, she noticed a plant that she doesn't know what it is. My guess, um... It's weed. <laughs> Which is not altogether untrue, but we'll get to that later. All right. It was at this point in my notes where I wrote, everything Guy does is so condescending, and without the knowledge of the everything that happens in the book, it could almost read as endearing and joking with Rosemary, but, like, if you know, you know. The thing is, throughout this um, book, Guy does not show himself to be the most um, caring considerate yeah he's all really i feel like he's just really unobservant he's like willfully ignorant of everything going on his guy only ever sees what he wants to see really is and that takes him further in his uh career exactly yeah he's like he can't commit to something if it won't help him in his goals and of course his goals is being a famous actor if if it will not affect that positively then he doesn't care about it so they joke a bit about the rent mr Miklas stops at a mahogany secretary and when i first read this i didn't know what a secretary was i was like is there just like a woman in a corner in the corner like writing shorthand i don't know no it's a desk it's like a roll top desk that comes down and my brain sort of like imagines someone in the 19th century like doing that correspondence at the desk that's odd he said there's a closet behind that secretary i'm sure there is there are five two in the bedroom one in the second bedroom and two in the hallway there and there he 
went closer to the secretary. Guy stood high on tiptoes and said, You're right, I can see the corners of the door. She moved it, Rosemary said. The secretary used to be there. She pointed to a peaked silhouette left ghost-like on the wall near the bedroom door and the deep prints of four-ball feet in the burgundy carpet. Faint scuffed trails curved and crossed from the four prints to the secretary's feet where they stood, now against the narrow adjacent wall. Give me a hand, will you? Mr. Miklas said to Guy. Between them, they worked the secretary bit by bit back towards its original place. I see why she went to a coma, Guy said, pushing. She shouldn't have moved this by herself, Mr. Miklas said. She was 89. So they decide to look in the closet, and there's towels and a vacuum, so it doesn't really make sense why that was put in front of that closet to block it, so... Why was it moved there, and who moved it there? We shall put a pin in that later. I'm sure we'll come back to that at some point. So they decide they gotta get out of the lease. They're like, we need this apartment. It's better located. It's walking distance while the theaters, which of course is important to Guy, but I personally think it should be important to Rosemary too, because if you're close to all the theaters, you can have some fun. Okay? You stalk all the actors. And... It's cheaper than the previous apartment they had a lease on, but because it's one room less. But still, it's better, right? The Bramford is better. So they get lunch at the Russian Tea Room. They consider what excuse to give to get out of their lease, and this is Guy's story. Guy spun a story about a call to join a company of Come Blow Your Horn leaving for a four-month USO tour of Vietnam and the Far East. The actor playing Alan had broken his hip, and unless he, Guy, who knew the part from stock, stepped in and replaced him, the tour would have to be postponed for at least two weeks. Which would be a damn shame the way those kids over there were slugging away against the commies. His wife would have to stay with her folks in Omaha. So, you know, spinning his tails entire book hinges on Guy lying the entire time, pretty much. Uh, he is the third. His lies are the third main character. There's Guy, there's Rosemary, and there's Guy's lies. <laughs> I think our remake is going to be called Guy's Lies with an exclamation point. It's a musical. <laughs> oh my god, I'm just imagining, if we had a musical, just imagine between, like, something terrible happening, Guy talking about, ah, oh, me myself i'm stuck in this world he's just like going around like um mini <laughs> i think <laughs> i mean when it comes to iron love iron loving books i actually think the stepford wives would make a better musical and that's kind of my dream is a stepford wives musical um i don't think rosemary's baby would translate into a musical as well but i think it could translate into maybe a movie musical i don't think i could make it work on stage as well no because the thing is i think with with um, Rosemary, is that you need the magic, like yeah. set design, for things to work the way they do, you know? But for like, um, if we did have the Stepford Wives, anyways, um, Glenn Close, we're calling you, please. Glenn Close, come back. Hit us up. <laughs> she would you. do it. I believe she would do it. I'm gonna. Glenn Close. It's my call for Glenn Close. Glenn Close, you have tried so hard to get Sunset Boulevard, the musical movie, to happen. Have you considered getting the Stepford Wife's musical to happen on stage? <laughs> That's my musical theater interlude. Anyway, so uh, there's this quote right at the end of chapter one that I really like. Uh, Rosemary sees a woman who worked at CBS. Um, Rosemary used to work there. And she recognizes her. She doesn't really remember her name because she 
just joined up a few weeks before Rosemary left. And so she comments on marriage looking good on Rosemary. Rosemary tells her they're celebrating because they've just got an apartment at the Bramford. The Bram, the girl said, I'm mad about it. If you ever want to sublet, I'm first. And don't you forget it. All those weird gargoyles and creatures climbing up and down between the windows. And uh, I really like that quote at the end because I like the mention of, of the gargoyles. I just think it presents a really interesting idea of what the Bramford looks like. You even get to see the Bramford on the outside, like, from a very large view in the original film. I don't think we did. Yeah, I don't think we do. Which is, yeah, it's unfortunate because I, I think the idea of having, like, the gargoyles and stuff, and the idea is that it's, that over time, the building, I guess, has, like, oxidized, so it's very, like, black, and it's, it's got gargoyles everywhere, which I think is a really cool vibe. My thought would be, like, for for trying to get, like, good, like, outside views of what the Bramford would look like if we did our version and we did it in Toronto, then I would want to use parts of U of T because the the main University of Toronto campus has amazing, like, stonework and all these really cool gargoyles. I think that, like, parts of, like, outside of, of the U of T campus should be used for the outside of the Bramford, for the vibes, the gargoyle vibes. Chapter 2. This is when we meet Hutch. Our first quote, which I think is actually the first sentence of the chapter, is Hutch surprisingly tried to talk them out of it on the grounds that the Bramford was a danger zone. So Hutch is, he, he's more of a very simple guy, you know, he's, um, as we said, he does, he's kind of gay. He's gay as hell. He's considered his friends. Also kind of served as a parental figure to like Rosemary. Um, when Guy first met her, he was, she was with this other Omaha girl. They're both like, 17, 18, and he kind of was their, like, surrogate, surrogate. parent. Father, yeah. F- father, yeah. And Hutch himself, Hutch himself also has, like, two daughters of, of, of his own. He tried to, like, educate Rosemary, put her through school, you know, and as well as he wrote children's books. He said, under books. three different pen names, he wrote three different series of boys' adventure books. Also, but the thing is, Guy likes him mostly because uh, Hutch is connected with a playwright named Terence Radigan. The quote I, I have here, connections often proved crucial in the theater. Guy knew. Even connections is second hand. Yeah, he's he's the best char- he's like one of the best characters yeah, this really book has to offer. His full name is Edward Hutchins. So Hutch is the nickname. He's English and he's fifty-four. My dream cast for Hutch in our version would be Ben Daniels. In my mind, Hutch is a bit like thing is, Ben Daniels is, like, much thinner than what I would imagine Hutch oh, looks like in, in my head. You kind I mean, of imagine Hutch being kind of, like, kind of stocky. I, I wouldn't really mind Ben Daniels. It's just because, in my mind, Hutch has, like, a dark, I think it's darker hair. Oh, yeah, and Ben's, like, more blonde. So he can dye his hair. It's like... I don't want Ben to dye his hair. I, that would make me, I don't want to see that. <laughs> in my mind, he doesn't have, like, great posh mannerisms, though, you know what I mean? We both imagined Hutch very differently. That's fun. Who's there's like that English um English he's gay. Who isn't English and gay? Are you thinking <laughs> wait, okay. <laughs> he's English, he's name. gay. I'm like, is it Ben Daniels? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm thinking of somebody particularly uh, he's a bit of a heavy set guy. Um he's he is kind of posh though. And he's a bit different. Um I'm trying to remember uh 
What's he in? He did a BBC documentary on being gay in Uganda. Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry. I'm thinking of Stephen Fry. Oh, you're thinking of Stephen Fry. My brain is like trying because I was like, Oscar, I was like, Oscar Wilde, Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde. If you said Oscar Wilde, I would have gotten that (laughs) because he played Oscar Wilde and Wilde. The thing is, I'm thinking of like the way, like the personality of Stephen Fry, pretty much. He's kind of like, he's very calm, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, 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 I see what you mean. Yeah. Anyway, should we list all the reasons that Hutch tells rosemary and guy they shouldn't move into the bramford okay here i go my offensive english hutch accent yes the bramford has housed a considerably number of less attractive personages trench sisters who were two proper victorian ladies who were occasional cannibals (laughs) they cooked and ate several young children including a niece none of these people that he mentions are real people they Um, are based off of real people though I'm sure they are. When I think of the Trench sisters, well, it's funny because it's two proper Victorian ladies. We're assuming that they're probably well-to-do. And I feel like when people talk about cannibals, they never consider them to be like, I mean, the word would be probably like posh, and the only other maybe would be like Hannibal, (laughs) kind of, uh, just because of like the vibes he gives, which is very like fancy. Which is kind of why I like this idea that there were, like, these posh women who were also cannibals. And then um, Adrian Marcato, who practiced witchcraft and made quite a splash in the 1890s. But nothing that he had succeeded in conjuring up the living Satan. He showed a handful of hair and some claw pairings. Apparently people believed him enough to <laughs> enough of them at least to involve the attack to nearly killed him in the Bromford lobby. I love this. Not funny, but it's it's hilarious. Same time. <laughs> you mentioned a story about some guy who got like shot. Yeah, yeah. So there's the story oh, I should have um looked it up. It's just like another guy with three names. <laughs> who was, like, an asshole in a small town, and this, like, whole mob of people got together because they were, like, we're sick of him. And somehow he gets shot, and no one wanted to say who pulled the trigger, who had the gun, who exactly shot him. So it was all sort of, like, like, they all know it had to have been someone in the crowd, but no one liked this guy, so no one's going to say who it was. I like this story. I think there's a lot of, like, I feel like there's a lot of true crime people podcasts who, like, tell the story and they're like, it's complicated because they murder him. And it's like, I don't know, it's about a community verdict. They realized this guy, like, wouldn't stop. I think he was, I, I don't know the whole story very well, but, like, I'm pretty sure he was a rapist. So it's like, if the whole town wants to get together and murder this guy, you know what? They're doing what they gotta do. The thing is, I, I kind of do feel a bit confused, because you have to be a really bad person for everyone to just hit you that much. Because, like, the entire community... Yeah, it's alibi by mob. <laughs> And also, you couldn't really prosecute an entire town because then you just kind of lose your entire, um, your whole economy is just... Yeah, it's like, what do we do then? I feel like it's it's only complicated in as, insofar as what do you do with the the aftermath? For the most part, I think, just let the people go live their lives. 
I think with Adrian Mercado, it's like, it's a bit crazier. Because, like, obviously, like, you know, it's New York City. Mobs of people in New York City is not, like, a shocking thing. I do think the idea of a whole mob, like, of people attacking one person in the lobby of an apartment building is shocking. Yeah, it, it, is, kind, it is kind of wild, actually. I think it requires planning. It requires, like, some organization <laughs> to do that. One has to wonder. But could you mean unleashing that level of hate in people? That they just start beating the yeah, shit Yeah, because either it's like they just showed up there knowing he'd be in the lobby, or maybe he was in the lobby, he was, like, speechifying to an already mob of people saying, I summon Satan! <laughs> and then they were like, y'all, that's fucked up, and then attacked him. And I'm assuming that this is taking place pre-1960s. Yeah, well, so this happened in the 1890s, which is why it's interesting that it's New York City. It's supposed to be, like, central Manhattan. Thinking of, like, mobs at that time, they still would have had to be organized. If I'm thinking, like, about big groups of people, it would have been people who have gathered for something. It would have been, like, unions, even. But it's also, like, the way it's... The way that story is, um told is more like this is a legend so what actually happened we can't say because i feel like maybe he would have had to like make a announce a pre-announcement when people showed up to this whole event yeah my idea was that there would have to be like a whole plan and it was in the lobby you know they weren't like going up to his apartment (laughs) (laughs) that that would be even weirder actually if they did actually just go into and just attacked him. Yeah. Uh, the last two people are Keith Kennedy and Pearl Ames, who are also not real people. I ended up looking them up, and they were... We don't have any information on who they are. Um, we know that Keith Kennedy apparently had dinner parties, and I just finished reading uh, Son of Rosemary. There is a very brief mention of Pearl Ames and her pets in that. So... That's interesting. I guess Pearl Ames had pets. What kind of pets? Anyway, do you want to um, do the the last quotes that Hutch says in my bullet points that I put here? Uh, in 1950s, a dead infant was found wrapped in a newspaper in the basement. There have been more suicides there than in houses of comparable size and age. This is the note I made, and I'm just going to read it out instead of trying to be clever. <laughs> In more recent years, it can be concluded that buildings that have this sort of reputation don't necessarily have more deaths and unfortunate circumstances on average than any other building. Rather, the notoriety is due to the notability of individual instances. Places like the Hotel Cecil, now named the Stown Main in Los Angeles, have enough stories with a significant name tied to it that the number of bad things happening seems higher and inevitably garner claim for being cursed. But I guess what we know about the Bramford is that maybe it is cursed. We don't know. But realistically, those kind of things don't really happen. But, you know, metaphorically, though, who knows? I like the um, the next quote. Can I actually read this one? Because there's other stuff. Yeah, go on. Oh, I'll do it. Okay, let's see what my Hutch accent is going to sound like. <clears throat> 
Perhaps it's simply that the notoriety of a pair of trench sisters attracts an Adrian Marcato, and his notoriety attracts a Keith Kennedy, and eventually a house becomes a kind of rallying place for people who are more, more prone than others to certain types of behaviour. Or perhaps there are things we don't know yet about magnetic fields or electrons or whatever. Ways in which a place can quite literally be malign. I do know this, though. The Bramford is by no means unique. There was a house in London on Prade Street in which five separate brutal murders took place within 60 years. None of the five was in any way connected with any of the others. The murderers... The murderers weren't related, nor were the victims. Nor were... Why can't I say words? Oh, my God. Nor... Nor, 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 no, <laughs> do a different accent. Not all the murders committed for the same moonstone <laughs> or the Maltese Falcon. Yet five separate brutal murders took place within sixty years in a small house with a shop on the street in an apartment overhead. It was demolished in nineteen fifty-four for no especially pressing purpose since as far as I know, the plot was left empty. Should end with that accent, the, like, <laughs> central London accent. <laughs> Rosemary worked her spoon in melon. Maybe there are good houses, too, she said. Houses where people keep falling in love and getting married and having babies. And becoming stars, Guy said. Probably there are, Hutch said. Only one never hears of them. It's the stinkers that get the publicity. Do you want to say that? Give me that last, it's the stinkers that get the publicity. <laughs> it's the stinkers that get the publicity. <laughs> yes, no, that's the accent. It's the stinkers that get the publicity. That's, that's the accent. <laughs> I sound like a little, like a smoker's cough, like, <coughs> stinkers. It's the stinkers that get the publicity. <laughs> that's the accent I want for Hutch. It's just... <laughs> Oh, oh I think Con O'Neill would be good. That would be the that's very just It's the stinkers that get the publicity. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Actually I was thinking of like maybe Charlie Cox could Because <laughs> 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 he does like a variety of accents. I think he's too young. <laughs> and that's the problem. Wait, we can age him. We'll up. age him up. We'll we'll give him some <laughs> age makeup. <laughs> just so Charlie he's Cox. <laughs> Maybe I want him to be like more northern. It's the stinkers that get the publicity. It's the stinkers that get the publicity. He should be from Yorkshire. <laughs> As we go through, we'll just give him different accents and see and see what we what we land on. Charlie Cox could do any accent though, because I think he did an Irish accent for his beginning of Daredevil because he thought because he, he was told that um. His character was Irish, and he was like doing like different Irish accents. Well, depending Matt on Murdoch, like, he's like, because he's Irish Catholic. <laughs> he's yeah. like, oh, well, he's Irish, I guess. <laughs> anyway, Hutch tells them that more recently, an elevator man at the Bramford was killed, and that he spent three hours going through Times Index microfilm of the library. Apparently, he has an entire list of unpleasant happenings. If there were really something wrong, Rosemary said. Wouldn't it have been demolished, like the house in London? The house in London, Hutch said, was owned by the family of the last chap murdered there. The Bramford is owned by the church next door. There you are, Guy said, lighting a cigarette. We've got divine protection. Hasn't been working, Hutch said. 
has been working. It has been working. Has it been working? Has it been working? Maybe, maybe. You know, actually, maybe. British people, call it with your accent. <laughs> what should Hutch's accent be? Hasn't been working. I feel, no, I feel like we've offended every single region of, <laughs> of the UK. <laughs> <laughs> Also, I think that if Hutch is going to spend three hours specifically looking for bad things that happened at one location, then he's probably going to find stuff. He's probably going to find out a lot of things. And it would be weird if he found nothing. I would be like, that's weird. What's going on there that nothing happened? But obviously, you know, shit happens. Uh, I I do want to talk about, like, Rosemary here for a bit. Yes, yes. Rosemary, she was born in Omaha, Nebraska. She's the youngest of four siblings. And she has a seemingly silent, mentally ill mother, a very angry father, to to whom she did leave. And later, it caused a lot of problems with her um, family. Now she's 23 in the book, right? 24. 24. So since she was, from when she was, like, 17 to 24 kind of had an issue with her leaving but then an even bigger issue with her marrying guy which then became a much more of a problem because he's protestant she's from a large irish catholic family and they're they're rather devout so um guy's mother was divorced and married a jewish canadian yeah okay on the following monday afternoon rosemary and guy signed a two-year lease on apartment 7E at the Bramford. They gave Mrs. Cortez a check for $583, a month's rent in advance, and a month's rent security, and were told that if they wished they could take occupancy of the apartment earlier than September 1st, as it would be cleared by the end of the week and the painters could come in on Wednesday the 18th. So, uh, they talk with Mrs. Gardenia's son about what furniture they want to purchase, but tragically the secretary aka the roll top desk is not for sale so sad a guy goes to work for a week on a daytime soap he'd previously worked on in march and they officially have the apartment on friday the painters come in on the 18th and on friday 27th august they moved hutch sent a telegram the bramford will change from a bad house to a good house when one of its doors is marked r and g woodhouse And that's the end of chapter two. I like that accent I did right at the end for him. Chapter three. Rosemary's really happy. She's setting up. She's decorating the apartment. Guy is sulking because he's not working. And I love every, like, meta mention. Hour 11 is like, I'm going to mention my own Broadway flop, Drat the Cat. Uh, Hour 11 wrote the book and lyrics for the musical Drat the Cat. It was starring Elliot Gould. It was a big flop. It had eight performances on Broadway. The song She Touched Me from Drat the Cat actually got very popular as He Touched Me by Barbra Streisand, who, of course, used to be married to Elliot Gould, so that's fun. So I looked up Drat the Cat, and I've listened to songs from it. It's honestly really fun. So the plot of that musical, it's about this woman in the 1890s. She wants to be a career girl, but, you know... You don't want to do that then. Women can't have jobs. So she becomes a cat burglar. This is from 
Wikipedia, very uh, reliable source. Frustrated by the obstacles standing in her way, she becomes a cat burglar and plunders the homes of Manhattan's high society in the 1890s. Honestly, it sounds amazing. It's a fun musical. Um, So, oh yeah, we're introduced to other residents at the Bramford. Lots of different people. Uh, shout out to Dubin and Devore, the homosexuals, and 7B. Um, remake, they'll have a bigger role. Yes, Dubin and Devore are going to be really important in our remake. Oh, there's also a couple whose last name is Gould, which I think maybe is like a reference to Elliot Gould, who is in Drat the Cat, which I think is cute because Levin does like to be kind of meta. It's very like mild breaking the fourth wall. It's not, like, in-your-face breaking the fourth wall of, like, turning to the camera and talking to you. It's like, let me just mention my own musical in this book. So it's like, Ira Levin also exists in the universe of Rosemary's Baby. Anyway, are we ready? Are you ready? I'm ready more than ever. They heard Minnie Castavette before they met her. Heard her through their bedroom wall, shouting in a hoarse Midwestern bray, Roman, come to bed, it's twenty past eleven. And five minutes later, Roman, bring me some root beer when you come. She's from a musical that I was in in high school, Oklahoma, which it turns out is not just a musical, it's also a state in the U.S. Oklahoma State? She's from Oklahoma State. She's not from Oklahoma musical. (sighs) Tragic, honestly. Also, something I noted here is that we get the note that Guy is nine years older than Rosemary. So, in the book, she is 24, which means that he is 33. And I think they must have known each other from around her being 19-ish. So, there's, like, a huge gap in their age. I guess nowadays, we do kind of talk about how oftentimes, like, and who are older and they end up like dating or marrying women who are significantly younger than them often do hold some little power whether it be wealth uh knowledge maturity all the little things that they kind of are aware of compared to someone who's just is beginning who's just starting adulthood how that can lead to just like use of many kinds yeah like financial emotional physical all these little things and like i don't think I don't think Rosemary is naive. I think this is something that's really important with her character is that I don't think she's naive. She's certainly not stupid. She's not like, she clearly like she grew up quite sheltered, but she's had, I think, enough time living in New York and being independent that she's not like ignorant of the world around her and what the world is like. But even though she's no longer a practicing Catholic, she still feels the need to adhere to social gender norms, both in general in the world that she lives in in the 60s, and also the threads that are left over from her upbringing uh, in a Catholic family. And you do kind of see that going on with, because she does kind of hold certain practices and even still does hold the Pope in a high regard and... She does view um, her womanly duties of, like, having children and taking care of them. You know, just the whole housewife role. Mm -hmm. I don't want to, like, completely disregard the fact that, like, she wants children. Because I think it's obvious that, like, Rosemary wanting children 
is authentic. Like, I think she can want children without it being, like, you want children because the patriarchy says that. But I do think there's a certain element of, I think, her urgency with regards to it. It's still fueled by social expectations. I think this was something that I had trouble with first reading the book, is that I I have a difficulty relating to Rosemary. I still don't really relate to Rosemary. Um, I understand her character, and I appreciate her character, obviously, but I had difficulty with some of it because it's like, I'm not interested in having children, and I mean, I love kids. I'm great with kids. I'm very happy just being an auntie. (laughs) I don't have siblings, but I'm very close with my cousins, and now that I've got um, my little baby nephew cousin, you know, I'm gonna be cool gay aunt. But having my own kids, not interesting to me. Not intriguing. I get what you mean. Like, I love kids, you know. Um, I have a nephew who I take care of pretty much every day because I do live in a, as they call it, multi-generational fa- household. Right. And so it's a whole, you know, it's a whole, it takes a village to a child kind of situation. And though I myself don't have an interest in having kids, I do understand why some people would want to have children and want to like you know bring other life into the world and Mm -hmm. you know just care for them i mean even if rosemary even if she does want children regardless of like her situation we don't live in a vacuum and the way we go about having children and the way that kind of view our roles as having children they are at the end of the day influenced by patriarchal systems and how the expectations of women and very idea and concepts that exist yeah Recently, I've been watching the show The Baby on Crave. It's actually an HBO original, I think. And I like to think of it as being part of the Rosemary's Baby extended universe. And one thing I really like about it is that I think you get the whole scope of how women, and in one particular episode, I think it really focuses on the different ways that lesbians feel about children and having children. And I, I think it really, like, it just, like, it gets there being women who, who want to have kids. There are women who don't want to have kids. There are women who didn't want to have kids, but have kids, and now they love their kids. <laughs> like, I think it, like, it really, while being, like, this horror comedy with a demonic baby, who knows what's going on with the baby, I think really manages to grasp all these different layers. Is, is it a British show? Yeah, it's a British show. Yeah, I highly recommend people watch it because I think it's really good and it really resonated with me. Oh, I just think it's so good. So, watch the baby. Anyway, almost every night the Midwestern Bray could be heard from the apartment which Rosemary and Guy came to realize had originally been the bigger front part of their own. But it's impossible to be 100% sure, the woman argued, and... If you want my opinion, we shouldn't tell her at all. That's my opinion. Yeah, I think it's kind of funny because you consider like the accents that were given to the characters in the movie. I think the original film, I think Minnie's character had a New York accent. Yeah, like I really want to imagine her being like really New York. Like my brain wants her to have like a high-pitched Brooklyn accent. I want her to sound like Harley Quinn. <laughs> but but it's like a midwestern bray and i'm like that's a different accent altogether have you seen the movie 
Yes, I've seen the movie. I've seen it once. Yeah, maybe that's why it's affecting your mind, because in the movie she did have a higher-pitched New Yorker accent. That's kind of why it's like... And then in the newer miniseries, she's French. And also she's like... Well, in the... (laughs) The cast of it's are younger and hot. Yeah, they're really it's sexy. Like a sexy it's like a sexy French lady who's like kind of bisexual. And Jason Isaacs, who is just... Ugh, a way that I think I have to describe Jason Isaacs is that I just think he's delicious. He's He's got it. I don't know what it is, but he's got it, you know? Okay, so... One afternoon, when she and Guy had been in the Bramford a little a little over two weeks, Rosemary was sitting in the laundry room at 5.15, reading The New Yorker and waiting to add softener to the rinse water, when a girl her own age came in, a dark-haired, cameo-faced girl, who Rosemary realized with a start was Anna Maria Alberghetti. So, um, it's not Anna Maria Alberghetti. It's actually a young woman named Terry Genofrio. And it's a name that Terry says she can't spell, so don't ask her to. And what do we learn about Terry Genofrio? Terry, she's a bit shy at first when um, Rosemary was looking at her because she was like, oh. She's like, yeah, I know. I look like Anna Maria Albighetti. Everyone everyone tells me that. (sighs) And then um, we also learned that Terry was taken off the streets by the cast of it, Mm -hmm. showing how um, compassionate they are. Say compassionate in air quotes. Even gifting her a 300-year-old necklace. With Tannis root in it. Which, I was wondering if you could, like, if it was kind of, like, weird and you could, like, smoke it. Well, I hate to bring up Son of Rosemary again. But, yes, Tannis root is related to cannabis. Of course it is. Of course it, it is. It is, I believe, a, like, cousin plant of hemp. And there is a part in Son of Rosemary where it's, like, Tannis, like, incense... And people are getting a little high. So one can, in fact, smoke Tannis Root. So what you're saying is that the um, woman who died was the drug dealer. Yeah, she grew the weed. So uh, Terry says that Mrs. Gardenia was a good friend of the Castavet. She used to grow herbs and things. I guess you would say herbs. She's American. I say herbs. She used to grow herbs and things and bring them in for Mrs. Castavet to cook with. And now that she's dead, Mrs. Castavet's got a miniature greenhouse in the kitchen and grows things herself. Uh, both women are creeped out by the basement and they decide to be laundry buddies. They're friends now. They're going to be laundry buddies. And Terry mentions that the neck chain with the silver, like, little filigree ball with the tannis root in it is a good luck charm pin in that i also like that all terry says to rosemary remarking that she's never seen anything like that is it's european <laughs> thing is terry's actually like the kindest and sweetest person in, in this entire book okay she she's a bit comedic she's she's my favorite character in the whole thing and she's in like two chapters basically anyway she says the cast of vets take care of her and list things they did and continue to do for her. They got me off the H, the dope, and got food into me and clean clothes on me. They get me all kinds of health food and vitamins. They even have a doctor come give me regular checkups. Terry says it's because they're childless, but in hindsight, it sounds to me like grooming. And further down the page, we find out Terry doesn't know anything about the sinister history of the building, which... I think adds another layer of suspicion to what the Cassavets took her in for. Rosemary said, 
It's nice to know there are people like that when you hear so much about apathy and people who are afraid of getting involved. So, for context of the time, it's based in 1965, which is the year after the murder of Kitty Genovese, which started the myth of social apathy and bystander apathy. We know now that what happened exactly was that, you know, her death was not ignored, her cries for help were not ignored. The idea is that there were 39 witnesses and no one called the police. And, like, this was a time before they even had 911. And there were people who ended up having to, like, you know, actually, like, call whatever, like, the closest precinct was. And they keep talking about, like, how she died alone. She didn't. Actually, one of her neighbors ran out and um, held her as she died. It's just, it's very, it's a really, really sad story. Of course, there was no way Levin was aware of the truth behind the headlines about Genovese's death and that her distress was invariably not ignored. However, I think Levin taps into something akin to social apathy that is true in uh, Western society, which I I think I'll probably discuss more as we keep going. But I think what it is, is that it became this like huge idea that people ignored this, which wasn't true. But people were so like, people were angrier about her attack and murder being ignored than the fact that she was like attacked and murdered like she was completely lost in this story it was all about these people who didn't care apparently when you know of course that's not true well thing is yes the concept of the, the bystander effect it's not inherently wrong i guess not in the case of kitty because there is actually a thing about how oftentimes people people will actually ignore a homeless person yeah. if they are laying down the ground and it is a very common thing. Yeah, and I think this comes from, like, a capitalist mindset, is this idea that these people are undeserving because they have to, you know, panhandle. I think it's how we end up getting to how, like, Terry was, like, helped by... Yes. I also don't think people helping people in the streets, like, I don't think that's really uncommon. I think the fact that they actually, like took her in and took care of her is probably really, like, surprising. But I also think something that is, I mean, not common, but when we're looking at, I guess, quote-unquote, crime and people who look for people that they can hurt or abuse, they look for people who are uh, marginalized. And for Terry she doesn't really have anyone who would remember her. You know, she's an easy target for them, and they, they take her in and they groom her. So they, they are known to her. It didn't start immediately as they just took her in. Rather, maybe it was they saw her multiple times, and they maybe, like, gave her some money one time, and then another time, and then maybe another time they gave her some money, and then they got something to eat, and they just sat down, they talked. And eventually, maybe they just kept doing that thing over and over again. And then Terry, like, was open to them talking about her struggles. Maybe she wanted to get clean. She had nobody. And they were kind of people she could trust. And over time, they saw that she was someone who did want to get clean and someone who did need the help. Exactly. It's a process. Anyway, that was heavy. Let's continue on. Next, we find out that Terry is a soap nerd. She knows who Guy is because she watches Another World's. Um, 
the soap that he was on, and she remembers him from being on it. So, Terry was raised Catholic, just like Rosemary. She also says that she has a brother in the Navy, but she's not close with him. Uh, They go their separate ways for dinner, and when Rosemary gets home, Guy is still being a little bitch, as usual, and I like this quote here. He was depressed by the likelihood that an actor named Donald Baumgart was going to beat him out for a part in a new comedy for which both had read a second time that afternoon. Jesus Christ, he said. What kind of a name is Donald Baumgart? His own name before he changed it had been Sherman Pedden. Sherman, I don't know if it's like Peden. It might be Peden. Sherman Peden. I also, in my notes, put this fucking guy, though. Because seriously, this fucking guy, though. Um, Throughout the book, Guy really does become, like, he does kind of hate other actors. It's like, dude, have some fucking respect. The thing is, he mostly hates people who manage to get above him. Guy's the kind of person that would take someone to a back alley and, like, break their kneecaps. (laughs) Oh my god, I actually think he's kind of a weenie. Like, I don't think he can do things himself. I think he's, he's very much like the kind of person, like... Well, this is what happens, is he's like, yeah, I'll just allow you to do this. But he's kind of, like, passive in it. Guy would never get in any situation that would that would mean he could ruin his pretty little face. He'll, he'll like, call a hit on someone. He's not gonna, he's not gonna get his hands dirty. He doesn't need to do that. He's got some witches that can do shit for him. Yeah, I, I think you kind of see it a lot in the movies. Like, in all, every movie, it's like, you can see he's kind of, like, struggling to do it, but he himself can't do it. He's a weak bitch. <laughs> It's like, sorry. It's like, dude, come on. I'll talk no game. Man up. Man up, guy. Guy the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, Terry and Rosemary go to pick up their laundry, and Terry stops in. She blushed and was flattered by Guy, which spurred him to flowery compliments. My next note was, seriously, this fucking guy. <laughs> you know, um, he does remind me of, like, Kristen Bale. Oh my god, yes! Oh my god, did I mention this? Like, if it was a 90s adaptation, it would be Christian Bale. There's no doubt about it. The person cast as Guy would be Christian Bale if this was made in, like, 98. I'm actually, like, when um, Christian Bale said in an interview, I have a sissy career. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> what a piece of I shit! <laughs> And that's why he, and that's why you can see like male actors overly try too much. It was a video about, about, um, what's it called? Like that kind of form of acting that's kind of annoying everybody else. Method acting. It's not the method. It's like, I'm sorry, you guys. It's not the method. It's just being an asshole. I wouldn't say he's the same as like Jared Leto. Jared Leto's an asshole. Like Christian Bale is like a danger to himself. Yeah, the thing is, he, he like lost so much weight for the masochist and then he gained Did a whole bunch of weight. you say the masochist? Isn't it the machinist? Machinist, sorry. <laughs> I mean, let's be real. It was a pretty masochistic thing for him to do. <laughs> and then he gained a whole bunch of weight for the di- the Dark Knight role, so gained some muscle. Right, then he yeah. gained a bunch of extra weight to- in the vice. And I'm like, this guy, then he lost weight for... Like, Kristen Bale has done so many things it's to like, his body that I'm actually it, amazed he's alive. It's just like, it's not healthy. But anyway, yeah, no, he's the perfect guy what else. <laughs> 90s 90s Bale. Oh, like, Christian Bale is Guy Woodhouse. Like- he is Guy Woodhouse. Actually, if we're going to talk about Christian Bale, let's bring back American Psycho. Because if we're talking about, like, Guy just, like, not being able to do anything for himself, like, this is the thing, is that American Psycho is about fantasy. Like, it's about 
toxic masculinity being acted out in one's own head and just like this idea of because like you sort of like realize at the end that like Patrick Bateman's actually a weenie <laughs> like it's not um like sorry spoiler alert he's not actually doing anything it's like there's no real like it doesn't really like culminate in anything and that's good I mean I'm just gonna say Patrick Bateman also is a little weenie a little baby bitch. <laughs> anyway, Terry says she's never seen the apartment before, and interestingly, here he goes, this quote at the end, Mrs. Gardenia and the cast of Etz had had a falling out shortly after her arrival, and soon afterwards, Mrs. Gardenia had gone into the coma from which she had never emerged. Ooh. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Chapter four. Rosemary says to Hutch that the neighbors don't seem abnormal, except normal abnormal, like homosexual. Gay rights. Okay, so Rosemary and Guy are at after party for a play, right? So they already went to the play, and then for the play Mrs. Daly, which resulted in an argument between Guy and D. Um, Bertillion. He's not important, though. Um, about foreign actors being blocked from employment. Right. Oftentimes, like, who oh, are European actors? Reminder, this is post-World War II, and Europe is still building its economy, and they don't really have a lot of, um, they kind of need to come to the USA to get acting gigs, especially, like, ones that are higher-paying and better-paying, because they want to... So that means many actors were only able to make a decent living in the USA and some parts of the UK. It was pretty good in Italy. Like, a lot of American actors were going over and doing films in Italy. So, like, well, the film industry, like, in Italy was, like, really big at the time because that's when like giallo got really big and then spaghetti westerns so like i think italy was pretty good but yeah not so i don't think so much in the uk there were a few people coming to the uk but not as much yeah no. right? and the u.s is where it was at yeah baby i'll make those big bucks okay that brings this brings out guys cunning and arrogant views and that somehow he believes it's okay for film actors to be stopped from being able to pursue careers in the usa even getting jobs and this results in a really, like, argument, which really shows Guy's um, true colors. He's like, absolutely not. Like, time he just kind of, like, does this whole scene, which then he had to then leave. Yeah, Rosemary's like, can we go now? And he's like, uh... I was like, and Guy's like, okay, the girls are we're leaving. I'm like, damn. Like, yeah, you better be leaving. Like, they, they don't want you here. <laughs> he's like one of those people who would be like, I'm socially liberal, but fiscally conservative. I hate this man so much. Are you ready for the inciting incident? The night was mild and balmy, and they walked. And as they approached the Bramford's blackened mass, they saw on the sidewalk before it a group of twenty or so people gathered in a semicircle at the side of a parked car. Two police cars waited, double parked, their roof lights spinning red. Rosemary and Guy walked faster, hand in hand, their senses sharpening. The night doorman Toby came from the house with a tan blanket that a policeman turned to take from him. The roof of the car, a Volkswagen, was crumpled to the side. The windshield was crazed with a million fractures. Dead, someone said, and someone else said, I look up and I think it's some kind of a big bird zooming down like an eagle or something. Rosemary and Guy stood on tiptoes, craned over people's shoulders. On the sidewalk, Terry lay, watching the sky with one eye, half her face gone to red pulp. Tan blanket flipped over her. Settling, it reddened in one place and then another. Rosemary wheeled, eyes shut, right hand making an automatic cross. She kept her mouth tightly closed, afraid she might vomit. So, they tell the cops who Terry is that she lived with the cast of Etz in 7A. 
Rosemary says she can't remember her last name, but that it starts with a G, and it's a long Italian name. Terry had made a joke about not being able to spell it. The cop has her suicide note, which had been taped to the windowsill with a band-aid. Says it's short and sweet, and that it's signed Teresa Genofrio. That was really interesting to me, because... Terry introduced herself as Terry Genofrio, and she also joked about not being able to spell her last name. And, like, I know people will do that, but part of me kind of believes that she can't spell it. And so the fact that it's spelled out there and the fact that it says Teresa instead of Terry is suspicious to me. I also put, because I know how Ira Levin is, the spelling of Genofrio wouldn't have come up at all and reiterated by Rosemary if it didn't matter. So if it's there, if it's mentioned, it probably matters. It probably means something. It goes to the creation of character. It goes to the plot. So, now the cast of it show up. I love the physical description we got of them. So, you... I actually wrote down how they were dressed. I wrote down the whole quote. Or, like, I I mean, I cut, I cut bits of it, um, but it's the general, just, like, their introduction. Do you want to read the quote that I, I put down? Coming from downtown were a tall, broad, white-haired woman and a tall, thin, shuffling man. Mrs. Castavet was wrapped in light blue with snow-white dabs of gloves, purse, shoes, and hat. Nurse-like, she supported her husband's forearm. It was dazzling in a pretty color seersucker jacket, red slacks, a pink bow tie, and a gray fedora with a pink band. He was 75 or older expressions of young alertness with friendly quiz quizzical smiles policemen stepped forward to meet them and their smiles faltered and fell away Casabet said something worrying the Casabet frowned and shook his head his wide thin mouth was rosy pink as if lipsticked his cheeks were chalky his eyes small in bright and deep sockets she was a big nose with a sullen fleshy underlip she wore pink rimmed eyeglasses on a neck chain that dipped down from behind in pearl earrings. I personally believe that they invented camp. Um, <laughs> Susan Sontag <laughs> wrote notes on camp about them. <laughs> Their whole, like, vibe is so... Flashy. Very fun. They're flamboyant. I don't know how to explain this, but I feel as though they are a... Uh, what's a, the word I'm looking for? They're like a cover couple, you know? They're a lavender marriage... Yes, yes, a little beard for each other. Their you know, beards, like, their mutual beards, yeah. Exactly. Like, I just can't explain, but like, the way they look, the way they're described, like, yeah. she seems, like, they seem like they're just, like, they're gay like, best friends. Yeah. Just to, and they're like, yeah, do you want to get married? Because it's like, she's like, I need health insurance. <laughs> and he's like, yeah. Yeah, I need um, a coven. <laughs> they're the worst <laughs> gay people that you know. <laughs> I feel like that's kind of us, though, on some level, because we have... We're the worst gay people that you know. <laughs> Let's move on. So, the Castavets are told that Terry killed herself by jumping from the window, and Mrs. Castavet is like, no, that did not happen. She had no reason to do that. And Mr. Castavet was like, I knew this would happen. Uh, he says yeah. that Terry got depressed every few weeks, which he told Minnie about, but she always waved it off. Stating she's an optimist, an optimist, and they're shown the note, and um, they're asked if it's Terry's handwriting. Mrs. Castavet nodded. Mr. Castavet said, "Definitely, absolutely." I wrote down that Minnie is outwardly expressive at the news of Terry's death. Her husband describes her as a very an optimist, 
refusing to see things as not going her way, while her husband sadly accepted the news with few words. Mm-hmm. The thing is, of course, we kind of already knew ahead of time that Minnie was very, is very expressive, like very She's dramatic, loud. open to the world. I love that about her. You know, I love a good loud. I love a loud woman. bitch. I love it. <laughs> Like I can't, I love when women are just really loud and like brash and like yeah. Thank you, loud brash women. Thank you for your service. That's so much for the me community. <laughs> so the Casavets say that Terry didn't have any next of kin, but Rosemary remembers Terry mentioning her brother in the Navy, although she didn't seem to like him all that much. And uh, finally, Rosemary and Guy introduce themselves to the Casavets for the first time. Tell them it there in seven e. I feel just the way you do, Mrs. Castavet, Rosemary said. She seemed so happy and full of, of good feelings about the future. She said wonderful things about you and your husband, how grateful she was to both of you for all the help you were giving her. Back in their apartment, they talk about Terry, wondering why she would kill herself, wondering if they'd ever learn what she had written in the note, and um, for once in his life, Guy makes a really good point. And even knowing it was in the note, Guy pointed out, they might still not know the full answer, for part of it had probably been beyond Terry's own understanding. It's the only good point he's ever made in his entire life. <laughs> it sucks, because it's the worst possible time. Yeah. Actually, you know what? I have to admit that Guy does know when to say the right things. He has the potential to be a good person. Good guy, you could say. He has the potential to be a good guy, doll, from the Child's Play franchise, but (laughs) sorry. This is my first mention of Chucky. Anyway, sorry. He has the potential to be a good guy, but he's just, he's just not. Uh, There's something within him to just want to be um, not a good person. You know, maybe being an actor that just kind of pushes you to be the worst person you could be. Yeah. So, um, Rosemary recalls what Hutch said about there being more suicides at the Bramford than other buildings, and Guy says it's crap. I can't imagine what he's going to say when he hears about this. Don't tell him, Guy says. He sure as hell won't read about it in the papers. A strike against the New York newspapers had begun that morning, and there were rumors that it might continue a month or longer. Because it's Newsies! It's not. Newsies is based on an 1899 strike. The Newsies is like a play? So Newsies originally was a Disney musical starring Christian Bale. Um, Of course, he's going back. And then uh, it was made into a Broadway musical. It's it's based on a true story. It's a highly fictionalized story of the 1899 Newsies strike. Santa Fe, my old friend, can't spend my whole life dreaming. Anyway, Newsies. So Guy finds out that he got cast in a radio commercial, and then he falls asleep, and then Rosemary is just lying there awake, and it's really restless, and then her dreams and real life mix together, and I don't really know how to, like, explain what happened, but I think it's important. So I'm just going to, like, read this, um, I guess, abridged I think I abridged most of it. Actually, a lot of it might be the exact same, but this is the last uh, little bit from this chapter. After a while, though, she was at Our Lady. Sister Agnes was shaking her fist at her, ousting her from leadership of the second floor monitors. 
Sometimes I wonder how come you're the leader of anything, she said. A bump on the other side of the wall woke Rosemary, and Mrs. Castava said, And please don't tell me what Laura Louise said, because I'm not interested. Rosemary turned over and burrowed into her pillow. Sister Agnes was furious. Her piggy eyes were squeezed to slits and her nostrils were bubbling the way they always did at such moments. Thanks to Rosemary, it it had been necessary to brick up all the windows, and now Our Lady had been taken out of the beautiful school competition being run by the World Herald. If you'd listened to me, we wouldn't have had to do it, Sister Agnes cried in a hoarse Midwestern bray. We'd have been all set to go now instead of starting all over from scratch. Uncle Mike tried to shush her. He was the principal of Our Lady, which was connected by passageways to his body shop in South Omaha. I told you not to tell her anything in advance, Sister Agnes continued lower, piggy eyes glinting hatefully at Rosemary. I told you she wouldn't be open-minded. Time enough later to let her in on it. Rosemary had told Sister Veronica about the windows being bricked up, and Sister Veronica had withdrawn the school from competition. Otherwise, no one would have noticed, and they would have won. It had been right to tell, though, Sister Agnes notwithstanding. A Catholic school shouldn't win by trickery. Anybody, anybody, Sister Agnes said. All she has to be is young, healthy, and not a virgin. She doesn't have to be a no-good drug addict whore out of the gutter. Didn't I say that in the beginning? Anybody, as long as she's young and healthy and not a virgin. Which didn't make sense at all, not even to Uncle Mike. So Rosemary turned over, and it was Saturday afternoon, and she and Brian and Eddie and Jean were at the candy counter in the Orpheum, going in to see Gary Cooper and Patricia Neal in The Fountainhead. Only it was live, not a movie. And that's the end of chapter four. This part does make sense to later on, because Rosemary's, I guess, supposed dreams kind of mixing up with uh, real life. Yeah, that happens a lot with her. A lot of the stuff that happens outside of her dreams gets leaked into uh, gets leaked into what she's dreaming about. So chapter five is when the friendship between the Castavets and uh, Woodhouses begins. It begins on Monday morning. Minnie Castavet stops by the Woodhouses apartment. She thanks Rosemary for what she had said the other day. She mentions that Terry was cremated with no ceremony. That's the way she wanted it. So this I found really interesting. Knowing Terry was raised Catholic, and it was only in the 60s, I think, because of Vatican II that the church allowed cremation. So this book is published on the heels of Vatican II. The book, I think, obviously is supporting the Vatican's move into the 20th century and making the church more accessible for Catholics, giving more freedom to nuns so they were allowed to like drive and they didn't have to wear a habit anymore and they were more integrated into the community and a lot of extremely traditional catholics believe that vatican ii opened itself to a lot of demons so there's this interesting precursor to the satanic panic here that a lot of catholics were like this change to make the catholic church more accessible for everyday 20th century Catholics is bad. It means now there's like demons in the Catholic Church. So um, unfortunately, Rosemary's Baby was misinterpreted by a lot of conservative people who were already uncomfortable with how the world was changing. Um, Civil rights, women's liberation, uh, finally the Stonewall Uprising, and the decriminalization of homosexuality. And in a lot of ways, Blaming everything on Satanists was easier than confronting one's own prejudices and accepting that the world was changing. 
And I have a quote from Ira Levin, which is really great. I feel guilty that Rosemary's baby led to the exorcist, the omen. A whole generation has been exposed, has more belief in Satan. I don't believe in Satan, and I feel that the strong fundamentalism we have would not be as strong if there hadn't been so many of these books. He also joked that he kept the royalty checks because, like, you know, of course he did. Why wouldn't he? It's really important to note that Levin was Jewish, but he wasn't religious. He was an atheist. He was a writer who wrote thrillers and horror to represent and comment on society and often on misogyny in society. And people just, like, refuse to read anything with any type of critical analysis, um, you know, to understand what a fucking metaphor is. And it's embarrassing for me and also for everyone in the 60s and 70s and also the 80s. Yeah, because it was around the time you kind of had, like, another form of, like, spirituality and, like, one's favorite people to hate, the hippies, coming in with all this, like, open-mindedness and... Free love? No. Like, we're, it's like, we're all gods. Like, I'm a god. I could, I am the god of my own destiny. You know, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. I think it mostly was rooted in, um, conservative people needing to find something significantly wrong with society. And what that ended up being was this belief in Satan, in satanic cults, and people's lives were torn apart and ruined because of the belief in satanic ritual abuse. I think Levin, he, he made this point saying that, like, he sort of can take responsibility in a way for feeling like he maybe was, was part of that, that fear. Unlike other writers like William Peter Blatty, who, who wrote The Exorcist, and I love The Exorcist, but that and the movie had, like, a really bad impact on American and Canadian society because suddenly people wanted exorcisms. And it's like, that's not really what the book is about. But the thing is that William Peter Blatty also took it very seriously. And, like, we can't really forget that, like, there's culpability there. Um, I think. And it really, like, it just came down to the fact that there were people who just hated the fact that things were changing. Anyway, sorry, we should move on. <laughs> so, Rosemary shows Mrs. Castavet around the apartment, and Mrs. Castavet asks a lot of questions. So, she's clearly... Very nosy. She's fishing for, like, everything about Rosemary's life and plans, and especially plans about having babies. And what Rosemary might know about what Terry could have told her. Mrs. Castavet inspected the living room, the bedroom, and bathroom, asking how much Mrs. Gardenia's son had charged them for the rug and the vanity, where they had got the night table lamps, exactly how old Rosemary was, and if an electric toothbrush was really any better than the old kind. Rosemary found herself enjoying this open, forthright old woman with her loud voice and her blunt questions. The note I put after this was she would soon come to regret this, however. <laughs> so Minnie asks Rosemary and Guy over for dinner that evening. Rosemary doesn't want to impose, considering the circumstances, but Minnie insists. Honey, if it was trouble, I wouldn't ask you, Mrs. Cassavis said. Believe me, I'm as selfish as the day is long. Rosemary smiles. That isn't what Terry told me, she said. Well, Mrs. Cassavis said with a pleased smile. Terry didn't know what she was talking about. Which is tragic, because it's true. Dun, dun. Guy came home at 2.30 in a bad mood. He had learned from his agent that, as he had feared, the grotesquely named Donald Baumgart had won the part he had come within a hair of getting. Not getting cast sucks. 
I know this feeling, but um, all Guy does is complain, so. Maybe if Guy learned to chill, you know what? Guy should smoke some tannis root. Maybe he'll chill out. <laughs> Interesting. Do you think we could make our own tannis root? Well, considering that tannis root doesn't actually exist, no. But we could just get some weed. What to get some, like, really bad smelling weed, then? Just get some really, like, skunky weed. I was thinking of, like, how I would do, like, um, a stage show of Rosemary's Baby. And one thing I would want to do... Because, like, I think what's what's hard with, like, the movie and stuff is that you don't actually get a sense of, like, what it smells like. And I I was thinking that, like, if in a, in a stage show, when it comes up, I would want there to be, some, like, something like uh, like a burned or, or through, like, some sort of vent to put some sort of, like, smell through so people get, like, a sense of, like, what the smell possibly could be my thought it was funny because i didn't even realize it when i was thinking this i was like oh yeah probably like rosemary mixed with something else and it's like rosemary imagine it having like a bit of a i'm trying to think of the word like in english for like it's like tamut and um like you know when you smell you know when like a baby's diaper yeah filled it just like burns your yeah burns your nose that's what it feels like to me like maybe like uh, even like a vodka would like burn your nose that's, that's what yeah. i imagine like the scent to almost like feel like it would smell. have to be like yeah it doesn't even necessarily have to be, like, really bad. It just has to be really strong. Yeah, almost a burning kind of strong. So, um, Rosemary tells Guy that Mrs. Castavet invited them for dinner, and Guy pushes back. Honey, Guy said, if we get friendly with an old couple like that, we're never going to get them off our necks. They're right here on the same floor with us. They'll be looking in six times a day, especially if she's nosy to begin with. The note I made in my book reads, well, guess the fuck what, my brother in Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, Rosemary convinces Guy that they should go using some very cleverly placed reverse psychology, and he says, We'll go. It'll be my good deed for the day. All right, but only if you want to, and we'll make it very clear to them that it's only this one time and not the beginning of anything, right? Right. And that's the end of chapter five. Exciting. That's where we're going to end the first episode of the podcast. Thank you for your time. We'll be back one day in the future with another episode where we do chapters 6 to 10 of part 1. Thank you so much for listening. This has been All of Them Witches. I'm Winnie. I'm Rhea. And this is a public service announcement to support your local witch coven with cannabis. <laughs> <laughs> and burn them down.